Last week in Hebrews 13, as we're studying that uh, latter section of Hebrews, we came across verse 4, which reads as follows. Let marriage be held in honor among all. So it applies to all of us, right? No one's excluded here. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Since we spent last Sunday unpacking that one verse and talking about how we as a body can make sure marriage is held in honor among all at Grace Church. We want to follow that with a message about how we can honor marriage in our respective roles as husbands and wives, and talk as well about how we can sometimes fail to honor marriage by the distortion of those roles, including what we would call forms of abuse in marriage. Let me explain why. As, as elders, we have been growing in our understanding of this issue of abuse and that reality that does happen sometimes. We felt it important to, to speak to that publicly because then we, we have a category that is functioning for us. Not that we're here to uh, uh, point fingers or anything like that, but we want this category serving us, functioning in our awareness as a church body that, that individuals might get help, that we might help each other. We might be more informed. I want to say from the outset, though, that certainly marriage is not the context, not the only context, rather, where such abuse occurs. I know that some here have experienced abuse as children, and that is just as grieving, if, if not more so, because of the vulnerability of children. And my hope for you is simply that God comforts you this morning, that he meets you, and that you feel our care as a church. And if we can come alongside you in any way, we want to. And I want to say again to the, to the single adults, the youth, the teenagers also, you are not excluded from this message. This message is for you also. You, you know married people, and we need your help. You can serve those around you who are married, and some of you will be married in the future, and it's important, therefore, that you be equipped for marriage in ways prior to marriage. Otherwise, you are building the plane as you're flying the plane, as many of us have done in marriage. But it's certainly better to have those wings in place in advance, if possible. And so I hope you'll be served, and you'll certainly serve other people. Let's hear God addressing us from his word in 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. 
For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Let's ask for God's help this morning. Spirit of God, we say again, we need you. We need you. I need you. We need you. We want to rightfully honor marriage as a church. We want to apply Hebrews 13 for this morning and days, months, years ahead that marriage would be held in honor among us all. And we pray today would contribute to that. Would you meet us? Would you help us? Would you speak to each person here? We ask for your help and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to draw two main things from this passage. Two principles, you might call them. Here's principle number one. I call it the reality of roles. Principle number one, the reality of roles in marriage. Now, as soon as we read verse one, wives, be subject to your own husbands, probably some good questions get raised. Could God really mean that? Isn't that for some backward, unenlightened time in human culture? It's a good question. My perspective and that of our elders would be that this is not just a cultural construct for 2,000 years ago, but that rather this reflects a difference of role within marriage that is in fact rooted in God's creation of marriage. Last, last week, we looked at, in Genesis chapter 2, the very first marriage, the very first wedding and the very first marriage, that of Adam and Eve. And there are indicators in that text and that wedding, that marriage, that point to a difference in their roles. For instance, Adam was created first, and we might think that's arbitrary, but the Apostle Paul draws on that to talk about male leadership in the church. Adam names Eve, you might recall, which is a pointer, an indicator to a role of leadership that he had. And in fact, perhaps most clearly, Adam is held primarily, or at least first and foremost, accountable when they sin. God says, uh, Adam, where are you? Even though Eve had sinned first pointing to Adam's primary accountability and showing his call for primary leadership. So in that first marriage, there are indicators, friends, of differences in role, which means they are rooted in creation, which means they transcend culture. Which is why the apostle in verse 1 calls wives to be subject to or submit to their husbands. Now, you should ask, what does that mean? 
I'm going to give you my attempt at a description at least. My attempt would be that is describing a, an attitude that is welcoming and affirming a husband's godly leadership. That's my attempt at verse 1. It's a Godward disposition, a Godward disposition that welcomes and affirms a husband's godly, appropriate leadership. Now, verse 1 is not a call for women to be subject to all men. I do see that, that mistake sometimes in some of the literature when verse 1 actually says, be subject to your own husbands, not, not to all men. Thank you very much. Verse 1 does not mean the husband in any way takes the place of the Lord Jesus Christ in a wife's life. In fact, this passage is part of a section that, that begins back in chapter 2, verse 13, which says, be subject for the Lord's sake, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution. That's the banner over these verses. Be subject for the Lord's sake. Because a wife's highest allegiance is to Jesus, as it is for all of us. So, for instance, if a husband is leading into sin or a sinful direction, she is not to welcome and affirm that kind of leadership. And verse 1 does not mean, does not mean the wife is in any way inferior to her husband. Verse 7 makes that crystal clear as the wives are referred to as heirs with the husbands of the grace of life. In fact, we could look at Genesis chapter 1, the very beginning of the Bible, where both men and women are made in the image and likeness of God. So page 1 of your Bibles declares that men and women are absolutely equal in value and dignity before God. I cannot stress that enough. Page 1 of your Bible corrects the error of male superiority or female inferiority. We are equal as image bearers. But 1 Peter 3.1 does mean that within our absolute equality, we have differing roles that we play out. God calls the wives to welcome and affirm a husband's godly leadership and then tells us why. I'm going to be brief here. Tells us why. First reason why is the winsome effect in verses 1 and 2. We're told there that the husband who does not obey the word of God can be won without a word. How? By the God-honoring, Jesus-representing conduct of his wife. Listen, ladies, God uses your example. Be, be encouraged by this. You are an influencer. God will use your Jesus-reflecting example, particularly here if your husband is not a Christian we trust God will and is using you wonderfully and powerfully. Second reason why, the lasting beauty. In verses 3 and 4, a bit confusing here. We're not going to unpack this at length. I don't think the passage is a blanket prohibition on all braided hair or all jewelry. I think the point primarily is don't make outward beauty your main focus. Make your main focus the imperishable beauty within that's so helpful in our culture, isn't it? Of airbrushed models telling you what you should look like. Third reason why, the Godward hope, the Godward hope in verses 5 and 6. Here's the engine, the engine that drives this. A Godward hope, which we're told Sarah modeled 
We're not sure when she called Abraham Lord or how that worked out. But uh, it may be because just an example uh, uh, from her in the entirety of her life that she had this sort of Godward disposition because, because it takes faith to follow a fallible husband, doesn't it? You could amen that if you like, ladies. I'm okay with that. <laughs> but then, Peter turns to the husbands with only one verse. But it's a loaded one. As if Peter said, enough said. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, notice the, the call here to the husbands is, I mean, it's already implied he's to lead. That's implied from verses 1 through 6. Now he just says, as you're leading, live with them in an understanding way, showing honor to her. Now, what does that mean, you might ask? What's it mean to show her honor? Well, here's perhaps a clue. In chapter 2, verse 17, Peter writes, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Same, same root word. Honor the king. Honor the emperor. Isn't that interesting? How would you honor the emperor in this day? Pretty carefully. <laughs> you, would, you would do so with clear, unmistakable honor, would you not? You would, you would have an overt respect for the emperor. An appropriate reverence, perhaps. And now Peter uses the same root word to say, show honor to your wife. I think you could call her the, the empress. Peter doesn't highlight the Christ-centered theology of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5. Peter doesn't say, a husband is head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church as Paul does. Peter doesn't say, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her as the Apostle Paul does. Peter was a simple guy, former fisherman. He just kind of brings it down to ground level, doesn't he? He speaks to simple people like me and says, Tab, live with her in an understanding way, showing her some serious honor. That's the kind of leadership the wives are being called to welcome and affirm. I, I picture it as a as a glorious dance of difference in marriage. A glorious, beautiful dance of difference, at least as God has intended it to be. Sung and I enjoy ballroom dancing together. We are not, she's very coordinated, I'm not very coordinated, but we are really good at the waltz. And we, I, even I can waltz. It's just one, two, three, one, two. I have to count. Two, three, one, two, three. One, two, three, one, two. It's something like that. That's pretty good, huh? That's pretty good. Now, in ballroom dancing, you have to kind of envision it here. One person has the responsibility of setting direction. The other person responds to that direction. You can't both be setting the direction. Otherwise, you're fighting with each other. One, two, three, one, two. We're going this way. We're going that way. It's not a beautiful dance anymore. It's not a waltz. It's a wrestling match. 
so I gently let her know how we're turning. And she gladly responds to that, that I'm not stepping on her toes. Someone leading, someone initiating. The other responding to that direction. That, that's what God intends verses 1 through 7 to look like. A beautiful ballroom dance of difference. A Christ-exalting, a Christ-exalting dance of difference. So I just want to ask briefly about your dance if you are married. I want to ask ladies, ladies, how, how are you welcoming and affirming your husband's godly leadership? Maybe a better question. Where, where might you more explicitly welcome your husband's godly, Christ-like leadership? There might be an area where the Holy Spirit could show you that you know, right here, right there in your interactions, you could, you could welcome and affirm godly leadership, and God might just bless that. It could be good for you to ask later on, dear, dear, how can I better welcome your godly leadership? And guys, how are you explicitly honoring her in your leadership? Does she feel honored by you in your leadership? Does she feel honored? Does your leadership honor her thoughts and input? Does your leadership honor her preferences and desires? Do you know what they are? Are you honoring those? Guys, it would be really good for us to ask, dear, how can I better honor you, my empress, in my leadership and care, as we dance together? There is a beautiful dance husband and wife can engage with when these roles are done well, a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting dance. But it doesn't always happen that way, does it? We're fallen people fallen world. And so principle number two, I would call it the danger of distortions. Principle number two, the danger, the danger of distortions. What I find interesting about God's call to husbands in verse seven would be all the safeguards God intentionally builds in. Safeguards, seems to me, intended to protect the wife. Did you notice that? Look at the rest of verse 7. Showing honor, it says, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Now, that's not a slam on women. That's meant to be a safeguard for women. That is most likely a reference to physical strength, as most husbands are stronger physically than their wives. That's not always the case. And the picture here of this weaker vessel, as I've heard it described, is really of a fragile vase. So guys, don't think or don't say, you're weaker. You're the weaker vessel. No, you're to think. She is a priceless, fragile vase 
that you are called to gently, gently care for and honor. That, that's the picture. And then, if that's not enough, God goes on. Since they are heirs with you, heirs with you, inheritors with you of the grace of life that Jesus purchased. So again, husband and wife, absolutely equal here. Don't make any mistake about it. Any leadership that makes a wife feel inferior is a violation of verse 7. A husband that thinks he is superior because of his role of leadership is mistaken. And it will have an effect for we read next, so that so that your prayers may not be hindered. Guys, this is sobering time. If a husband's leadership is not consistently honoring his wife, God will lovingly, lovingly discipline that husband. When you go to pray to him, you might you might sense the Holy Spirit saying back to you, thank you, but let's deal with this first. Let's talk about how you're treating my daughter. You see what I'm saying? Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter seems to know that what he just said in verses 1 through 6 about submission throws the door open to some potential distortions, and so we're given these safeguards. And I, I, I appreciate the illustration that Jason Meyer has used. Jason Meyer took John Piper's place as lead pastor at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Preached a sermon a while back that I recommend reading. He has an illustration of a road with a ditch on either side. Imagine the road, the middle of the road, is this beautiful dance that I described. It's, it's in particular a husband's wife-honoring, caring, loving leadership. That's the middle of the road. It's what it's supposed to look like. But he says on either side of that road, there's a ditch. Imagine a road, deep ditch on either side. One ditch is the error of passivity. This is when we fail to fulfill our calling to provide loving leadership because we're passive. We abdicate. And this is probably the ditch that most of us as husbands find ourselves in, being passive at times. We surveyed the room, anonymous survey, probably 90% of husbands would say, I tend toward that ditch, myself included. And so the passive need to hear Guys, take godly initiative. Take some godly, appropriate initiative. Your wife should not have to carry the general burden of initiative for the family. Can she take initiative? Of course. Can she complement your leadership with appropriate initiative? Of course. But does she, does she carry the burden of consistent, general initiative in your family? If it's going to happen, it's got to come from her. If so, we're, we're, probably, we're probably teetering on the ditch here of passivity. So if there's a problem with the kids, a challenge with the children, let us, generally speaking, be the ones who take initiative to talk about solutions and implement those. 
Now, for me, and maybe you can relate, oftentimes I think, I don't know what to do. And so initiative can be, honey, what do you think we should do? <laughs> or honey, can, who can we ask to get help? Or how can we get some input on this? That's good initiative. That's humility. That's good initiative. You're leading to get help. A plus. We initiate, we seek to make sure there's implementation as the general, general pattern of our leadership. So for most of us, maybe all of us, we need to hear this morning, guys, don't be passive. Don't have God saying to you, Adam, where are you? Tab, where are you? Take initiative, lead with love. But I want to really focus on the other ditch. Because I think that's the one God is seeking to protect us from in verse 7. Jason Meyer calls the other ditch hyperheadship. I think that's a good term. Hyperheadship. Hyperheadship, of course, is when our leadership fails to honor her as our equal. Hyperheadship looks more like domination. Hyperheadship resembles dictatorial control. Hyperheadship can be a demand for unchallenged obedience and unquestioning agreement. Hyperheadship says, I'm the boss and it's going to happen the way I want it. That is a satanic distortion of our role as husbands. What did Jesus' headship look like? What did Jesus' headship look like? Think about it. Ephesians 5. He gave himself up for her, his bride. We sang about that in that great hymn that God led us, led, led us in. He sacrificed for his bride. He purchased the church with his blood. And then Jesus, you know, he applies that to all leadership, including Ephesians 5. But think about Think about when the disciples are squabbling amongst themselves about who among them is the greatest. And Jesus gathers them in Mark chapter 10 for a little leadership lesson. He calls them together. It says, let me read, just read it to you, John, uh, Mark 10 rather, Mark 10. Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers, the, the leaders of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And their great ones exercised lordly, uh, authority in a lordly kind of way over them. But it shall not be so among you. He says, it should not be so amongst my people. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first must be slave of all. Why? For even the Son of Man, Jesus himself, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life sacrificially as a ransom for many. So biblical leadership at its core What's it look like? It looks like servanthood, doesn't it? That should be the effect. Servanthood. Because that's how he leads us. He came not to be served, but to serve you and me. But often a husband's leadership gets distorted into something different, into what Meyer calls hyperheadship, which leads me to the category of abuse in marriage. Like I said, as elders, we, we, just, we just felt like we believe it's a category that 
we just want to make sure it exists in our church culture, that, that will serve us, that we can help each other whenever appropriate. And if someone needs help there, that they realize they need help. For many, it just might be preventative medicine, you know, a vaccine that, that guards you from something. Maybe for all of us, that, that's all this is, preventative medicine today. And you never got sick, and you can thank me later. But it might shed some light on something that's happening for you right now. now I want to acknowledge something, that abuse can happen from the, from the wife's side. Wives can be abusive, verbally or physically, in how they relate to a husband. That's not my focus today. Okay, so I'm going to acknowledge that to you, but it's not my focus. My focus is on the husbands, really in keeping with the safeguards built into verse 7, right? There are no safeguards <laughs> given to the ladies. The safeguards are given to the husbands for the ladies. So, so husbands, if you feel like this is a, a, a one-sided, unfair sermon, I'm going to point you back to verse 7. Now, the term abuse needs, I think, careful definition. But what's interesting is, and you read the literature on this, the, the definition used is, is very consistent. It usually reads something like this. Abuse is a pattern, pattern of behavior that seeks to demean and control your spouse. Very important definition. A pattern of behavior that seeks to demean and control your spouse. This is not periodic anger. This is not episodic incidences of harsh words. I'm afraid that happens in every marriage. I wish that weren't the case. I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm just saying that's the reality. That's not what I'm talking about. But that sometimes there's a pattern an ongoing pattern with an intention, a specific intention that seeks to demean and control the other person. It takes many forms. It could be a demeaning physical control, but it doesn't have to be that. It could be a demeaning financial control. We just pull all the purse strings and we control somebody that way. It could be a demeaning spiritual control, or a demeaning sexual control, or a demeaning emotional control. It comes in many forms, and there's a, there's a section of Meyer's sermon that we put out in the back of the info table that I would recommend to you, you pick up. It surveys different categories of abuse, and, and the, the gradations, and I'm not saying you're on there, I'm just saying it might inform you so that you don't go there. I recommend picking that up. Abuse comes in many forms, but it has this common dynamic to it, this dynamic of control. Now, I attended a, a conference on abuse last June with Sung and Stephen Sharon Farrington and Dan Arthur. We went to be better equipped on this topic, and it was, it was fantastic and very helpful. The teacher, Chris Moles, had a memorable illustration to illustrate this dynamic of control. He said, little thought experiment, and I want to do it with you. He said, imagine, right now, imagine there is a grand piano suspended above your head. Now you get that thought in your mind. There is a grand piano 
hanging from the ceiling above you right now. How do you feel? Vulnerable, you feel threatened, you, you, probably in some way afraid. That would be street smart. In some way, you are afraid. Now imagine you realize that piano is connected to a rope and pulley system, and I am holding the other end of that rope. I control what happens with that piano above your head. Now, now how do you feel? But now you're afraid of me. Now I'm controlling you with fear. Do you see how this works? Now you're going to do all you can to appease me because I control you with this sense of fear I'm imposing on you. That's often the dynamic. Not, maybe not always. Those wires could be, that rope could be a physical fear. I think that's being protected against here. As Peter says, they're, they're the weaker vessel, the fragile vase. We are stronger, generally, bigger, can get louder, raise our voice in an intimidating way. We can make physical threats and we can follow through on them. We must not. That, that rope we're holding, it could be, could be, again, a financial fear. Not always, but, but a good bit of the time, the husband may be the primary breadwinner. Often, not always, maybe the, the wife has spent a number of years caring for the children working at home. And so that sets up a dynamic, potentially, where I can pull a rope of financial control. That rope can be emotional as well. Imagine, this is what Chris Mole said, this, this was helpful. He said, imagine living under that piano for years. Imagine what that does to you emotionally. Do you see the dynamic of control that we're talking about? That I think God is addressing and guarding against in 1 Peter 3, 7. Now some may object you don't find the word abuse in the Bible. But I do think, friend, you find the concept we're talking about. If the common denominator is control, then you could certainly substitute the biblical word oppression. Oppression. And there's an article in the back about oppression in marriage. I would highly recommend you read. The Bible says a lot about oppression. Think about Israel's experience of slavery in Egypt and God's care about that. Exodus chapter 3, we read, And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, God says. I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. But it's not just that historical event. The Psalms capture how God feels about the oppressed. Psalm 9, we read, The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed a stronghold in times of trouble. He cares about that. Psalm 10, O oh Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will meet them. You will incline your ear. Notice, to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. I confess to you, I have taken quite a while to see this issue and appreciate its seriousness. I think what helped me perhaps the most was when I did a brief word study in the scriptures on oppression. 
And you realize what a huge theme this is in God's Word. And you begin to share God's heart for how real it is. You realize why we as a church want to be champions for the oppressed and protectors of the vulnerable. Particularly, friends, particularly because women in Bible-believing churches like ours can be vulnerable to this kind of oppression. Here's why I say that. Because a high view of the covenant of marriage like we have, a high view of the covenant of marriage like we have, with a view on distinction in roles, if misapplied, can be a recipe for this kind of oppression. Author Gary Thomas, in an article he published last year called Enough is Enough, in which he calls the church to respond to this issue, he recounts a conversation in which the wife began with him saying, quote, God hates divorce, right? God hates divorce. Gary Thomas said, yes, he does. So I've just got to accept what's happening in my marriage, right? Just got to accept it, right? Just got to take it, right? Then he says, here's the situation. Her husband is a porn addict. He has neglected her sexually except to fulfill his own bent desires. He keeps, he keeps dangling divorce over her head, which makes her feel guilty as a Christian. He presented her with a list of things that he has seen in pornography that he is now requiring her to do or he will divorce her. Do you see what I'm talking about? And that's sexual and spiritual and emotional oppression. I have seen, in 20 years of pastoral ministry, I have seen, I have seen wives labor under the impression that they were being unsubmissive if they brought their need for help and the problems in the marriage to me. I assume because the husband's given them that permission, and sometimes the church at large gives them that impression, rather. The husband who says, you can't talk to anyone about this unless I give you permission, is just plain wrong. That's spiritual oppression. I control your experience of fellowship and care. That's eh, wrong answer. I've seen husbands over the years demean their wives and control them with volatile anger. Sung and I have visited a wife in another state in a psychiatric hospital after an attempt of suicide. And then the wife can be told by the church, if you just were to submit to your husband better, he wouldn't get so angry. I think Jason Meyer's right when he says, that's kind of like the police coming to a crime scene where a woman has been shot and saying, what did you do to bring the bullets on yourself? My point is that good theology, biblical theology, biblical truth can get misapplied and create a dangerous recipe. 
The answer to that is not to jettison biblical teaching on roles in marriage. The answer to that is not to jettison a high view of the covenant of marriage. The answer is to make sure we're heeding the safeguards God puts in in verses like 1 Peter 3, verse 7. Now, I just want to say again, though, there's no mistake. Friends, we must, we must distinguish typical sinfulness and abusive sinfulness. You, we really got to make that distinction here. Some wives, as Jason Meyer puts it, need to hear what you're facing would be rather typical difficulties that with counseling, with care, the power of Jesus can be met and overcome. But others need to hear this is not normal, this is abuse. And we're just concerned that we have that category functioning in Grace Church for the good of us all, that marriage might be held in honor among us all. Because we believe, we believe in principle number one, the reality of roles. We believe that. I think it's biblical. But we see as well, principle number two, the danger, the potential danger of, of distortions. The ditch of passivity is real, to be sure. But so is the ditch of hyperheadship. Both ditches have an answer. A giant tow truck who can pull us out of either one, a very powerful tow truck named Jesus. If your car is stuck in a ditch, there's a tow truck who can pull you out. His name is Jesus. So please hear this, every married couple. The hope for your marriage is not in you or your spouse. It's in him. Okay, here's, here's probably the most important thing I'll say today. Your hope for your marriage is not in you, it's not in your spouse, it's in the one who lived and died and rose from the dead and is reigning right now and is your great high priest who stands ready to help you. He is the one who can meet us, friends, with powerful help for real and lasting change. If you see yourself as potentially abusive, there, there is gospel hope for you. It is hope. It is hope on the other side of repentance in ways. It is important that you acknowledge your sin, that you confess it as sin to God, and that you get help from others because we want to help you and others want to help you. That's the point of this. Help is available. It's going to take time. It's going to take effort. But Jesus Christ did die for the sin of abuse. He died for the heart-level sin of a control of others. He died for the sin of oppression in marriage. You can come to him for real help and lasting change. And for others, for others perhaps who have been abused, or maybe someone in the present, help Help is available to you too. Now, we're not saying we have all the answers, but please call someone. 
if, you, if you're a, a woman here and you're identifying with a pattern that I'm describing, you want to talk to a lady, call, call one of our wives, reach out to Mindy Fenska. There's hope for you. I hope you're around you right now, but most of all, let me just say, there's hope for you in Jesus Christ. There is one who exercises a very different kind of leadership over our lives. There is our perfect head, our perfect husband, Jesus. And the prophet Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah said of him, he was, quote, oppressed, and he was afflicted. That's Isaiah 53. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Jesus understands oppression. He was oppressed himself. He can relate to that experience. He wants to meet you and help you. And I want to close with these, what I hope are hope-giving words for all of us that come right before our passage. If your Bible's still open, look to the very end of 1 Peter chapter 2. Right before our passage, here's what we read. That he, Jesus himself, bore our sins. He bore our sins in his body on the tree, on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, friends. Hear that. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Please hear that as we close. You have a great shepherd and overseer of your soul, the perfect head for all who believe, the loving shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. He is the shepherd and overseer of your soul. And we're going to turn to him with great hope as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. So would the ushers prepare to serve us and the music team please come. We want to pray that God would use the bread and the cup to minister fresh hope to our hearts for every single person here. Your hope is not in you. It is in Him. My hope is not in me. It is in Him. He bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. Let that minister hope to you, friend, as you have communion with Him by the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're here this morning and you've yet to turn to Christ and believe, we are so glad you're here. Thank you for coming. This good news I'm alluding to is good news for you as well. If you will turn to Jesus, forsake going your own way, and trust in His life, death, and resurrection. We praise you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for this great hope. Let's stand together.